Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. Well, what a treat to be here with you guys. It's been a long time in the making, and I'm just glad it finally worked out. Um, I, it's been three years, I heard, so I'm a little slow. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a slow decision maker, but when I make them, I show up. So we're here, and I'm glad you're here. Glad you showed up. So so proud of uh, Renee and Joaquin, what you guys are doing, what you've done, the church here. Bless you guys. For the church of Austin that has welcomed Bethel, my goodness, you guys impressed me so much. And and uh, I, I think Austin is in for some great surprises, some, some great... Holy Ghost invasion, so I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to be here. Um, I try, try to always have something encouraging to read to you. This actually happened in Texas. It's true. It, uh, it supposedly is a true story. In Mount Vernon, Texas, is there a Mount Vernon, Texas? Yeah. All right. In Mount Vernon, Texas, Drummond's Bar began construction on expansion of their building to increase their business. In response, the local Baptist church started a campaign to block the bar from expanding with petitions and prayers. Work progressed right up to the week before the grand reopening when lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. After the bar burnt to the ground by the lightning strike, the church folks were rather smug in their outlook, bragging about the power of prayer. That is, until the bar owner sued the church on the grounds that the church was ultimately responsible for the demise of his building, (laughs) either through direct or indirect means. In its reply to the court, the church denied any responsibility (laughs) to to the building's demise. The church read through the plaintiff's complaint and the defendant's reply. And at the opening hearing, he commented, I don't know how I'm going to decide this, but it appears from the paperwork that we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation that now does not. That's just funny. A man and his wife and his mother-in-law went on vacation to the Holy Land. While they were there, the mother-in-law passed away. The undertaker told them, you can have her shipped home for $5,000 or you can bury her here in the Holy Land for $150. The man thought about it and told him he'd just soon have her shipped home. The undertaker asked, why would you spend $5,000 to ship your mother-in-law home when it would be wonderful to have her buried here and spend only $150. The man replied, a man died here 2,000 years ago. He was buried here. Three days later, he rose from the dead. I just can't take that chance. Uh, I have many more of those. So if the message goes south, I have nowhere to go. I have many more of these. What a strange time and wonderful time to be alive. It, uh, it really is. It's, when you look through history, uh, some people were never privileged to live at a time of crisis. And it's in crisis that strength becomes evident. It's in crisis that clarity of the mind of Christ becomes revealed. It's in pain that miracles become not optional, but necessary. Uh, We're obligated to produce these things. Certainly not because of our goodness, not because of our anything. It's all because of the grace and mercy of God, but it's still an obligation. And we are privileged to live at a time when, to be honest, it's craziness all around us. The, it seems like the, uh, the, the patients are running the asylum at times. <laughs> and I said that as kind as I know how. 
I have many more thoughts, but we'll leave it right there. So what I've been thinking about working on in my own world, there's so much swirling that's going on, so much mental stuff that's going on. Sometimes the greatest opponent to your and mine living in the mind of Christ is our opinion, not the devil. Sometimes our ideologies are thoughts that we form thinking we're doing God a great service or representing him well, and yet it has no foundation in the kingdom whatsoever. And the enemy, to be honest, doesn't even need to show up when I'm exalting my opinion. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of my opinion. I, I really, I'm unimpressed with any idea I've ever had that he wasn't the sponsor of. Uh, every one of them had to be reworked. Every one of them had to be repented of. Anything you build on a false premise has to be torn down to its foundation, repented of, and then rebuilt from there. And, the, and oftentimes we make compromises with world ideologies to obtain favor. Anything you obtain through self-promotion, you'll have to sustain through self-promotion. Anything you fight for in human strength to obtain, you'll actually have to keep fighting just to keep it. There's an interesting verse in Proverbs. The Lord says that the Lord gives us wealth. Don't be offended by the term. It's actually in the Bible. <laughs> Am I a prosperity preacher? I don't know. I just know I'm not a poverty preacher. I got that one figured out. He, the Lord says that this, this group over here likes that. That's good. All right. May it rain dollar bills on you or something like that. We've actually had that happen, but let's not go there. The scripture says, the Lord makes wealthy and he adds no sorrow to it. Now that's the interesting thing, because when we fight for wealth, I'm using wealth now to be symbolic of any measure of breakthrough. Favor, a promotion at work, uh, maybe the diploma. It could be the home that you've always wanted. All these things that we oftentimes find ourselves contending for outside of the grace of God. He says when he adds the wealth, there's no sorrow with it. But there's many people whose bank accounts are absolutely full, but they lost their family in the process. There's sorrow with it. They lost their best friend. They lost the esteem of their comrades, the people that they work and fight with. Self-promotion is costly. And you and I were actually designed for the mind of Christ. Everything about you is perfectly suited for obedience. We are never more original and authentic than when we obey God. Every other attempt at authenticity is actually a poor, poor copy of what God intended. The kingdom is, a, is, a, is a, so unusual. This reality of the kingdom, the reality of God's domain, the reality of the kingdom, it's bigger on the inside than everything that exists on the outside. It's the all-encompassing kingdom. Learning how he thinks, learning how he functions, to me, is the great adventure in life. Learning how he thinks and learning how he functions is the great adventure in life. Because it's the discovery of God himself. For example, Jesus in John chapter 1 is described as the Word made flesh. It says in John 1 verse 14, he is the, Jesus Christ is the Word of God made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. He is the tabernacle of God among us. Word of God made flesh. But on, in John 6, somewhere around verse 62, 63, somewhere in there, he says, 
Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So just think through this with me. Jesus is the word made flesh, but whenever he spoke, the word became spirit. He's not speaking ideas. He's speaking presence. He's not just trying to give us a new philosophy. He's trying to give us a new new origin of life. A person who dwells in us and empowers us in the mind of Christ. Only in the mind of Christ can I represent him well. The mind of Christ, while it deals with intellectual matters, reasonable things, it is often used by God to display the reality of heaven on earth. It's the mind of Christ that actually ushers in the reality of the kingdom. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God. What's the will of God? Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What is the will of God? Your kingdom come. Your will be done here just like it is there. That's the will of God. What does the renewed mind do? It proves that. See, the renewed mind is not just a new philosophic approach to a problem. It's not just uh, a value system where, where we give to the poor, which absolutely would be better. And we t- it's, it's not just those simple things. How many of you understand that an unbeliever can give generously in a very commendable way, but not have the mind of Christ? We're wired for certain things, and generosity is one of those things. I love it, to be honest. I, I don't put, I don't, uh, put anyone down. I, when I see uh, you know, s- some of the wealthiest of the world set aside great amounts of resource just to give and to care uh, for various places of, of need, I, 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 just, I love seeing it so much. Sometimes I just sit there and cry. I'm so, so thrilled with them using what God has given them. They may not know the source yet, but they're stepping into their identity. And, and, I, I, and I love it. I love it. But there's something that the believer has to offer that only a believer can offer. And that is the reality of another world that reshapes and refigures this one. When Jesus said, my words to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, my words become presence and that presence gives you life. When he said that, it was in John chapter 6. We're not going to look at that. I, I want to go somewhere else tonight. <clears throat> so hopefully you're here for a journey. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll get frequent flyer miles tonight. <laughs> when Jesus said this in John chapter 6, it was the, uh, John 6, if you're familiar with it, was the time where Jesus, his one message Nobody bought the podcast at the end when it was over. I mean, nobody, nobody called mom and said, hey, you got to listen to this one. Because this is the one where he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And every time the people kind of groaned and moaned and murmured among themselves, he just turned up the heat. He just made it a stronger message. It was, it was like he wasn't really that concerned about popular opinion, public opinion. He was not, uh, he was not running heaven's PR campaign. He was... He was doing what he said he would do, only say what the Father was saying. So here he is saying something that no one can understand. Isn't that amazing? He's saying something. Why? Because the Father is saying. Nobody has a grid for this. If there was ever a culture in all of human history that was anti-cannibalism, it would be Israel. <laughs> All right. I would hope all of us could say yes, amen to that. But, but if there were ever a, a, a culture that would be absolutely opposed to anything similar to that, it would be this group. And Jesus is telling them, um, if you want anything to do with me, you're going to have to drink my blood. And they go, oh, this is getting bad. <laughs> you can just imagine a crowd, you know, things were going so good when he was multiplying food. <laughs> I mean, lunch today was outrageously good. I'm very satisfied and full. 
And then he says, he sees them murmuring. He says, yeah, not only are you going to have to drink my blood, you'll have to eat my flesh too. And there, about this time, this crowd could have been fifteen to 20,000. Some would say even more. They just began to leave. I, I, I know many of you are familiar with the story, but I love to walk through the story just for my own sake. Because if you can imagine church growth at its finest, 15,000 down to 12. Every pastor in the room that has lost people should be comforted with this story. It's even better than Gideon's story. At least he ended up with 350, you know. Jesus has 12, and one of them is a bad one, a bad apple. So, so Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, you guys going to go too? And Peter nails it. Now, we make fun of Peter, but Peter, Peter took risk. And when he was wrong, he was really, really wrong. Like the time he rebuked Jesus. Not a good plan. Don't rebuke God. It just doesn't ever work well for the person who rebukes God. But he was, he was courageous enough to take a stand in this moment. And he says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you understand what he's saying here? Jesus just said something. Let me put this in my words. This is what I hear Peter saying. Peter's going, Jesus, we don't understand the flesh and blood thing any more than the crowd that left. But what we do know is whenever you talk, we come alive inside. Because see, there are sometimes the Lord will speak something to you. You don't understand, but your spirit comes alive. And that's what happened in this moment. And for those who only can accept things they understand, you've just created a God in your image. He's about your height and he looks just like you. We never want to reduce God to our size, to our limitations, our restrictions. In fact, it becomes imperative that every follower of Jesus has those moments where we follow out of trust, not understanding. Christianity is not called the understanding, it's called the faith. Your heart will take you where your head can't fit. Now I believe in wisdom and understanding a lot. It's actually kind of what I want to talk about. I think I'll get to it tonight, we'll see. (laughs) The way it's going right now, I may end up back with that lady being buried in Israel again, I'm not sure. I love so much, I, I love understanding so much. I love when, when God explains stuff. I don't know if this happens to you. Every time he gives me a glimpse of a truth, it, I understand. And now I have five more questions. <laughs> it's, it's kind of how he keeps you dependent. He says, yeah, I'll show you what you asked for. And you go, oh, well then that means, oh. What do I do now? It's this wonderful relational journey that all of us are on. And and the target of the Lord every day of our lives is to transform our perception so that we live from the mind of Christ. Now you might say, Bill, the scripture says we have the mind of Christ. And it's absolutely true. We have the mind of Christ. Everything has been purchased for us. But we have many things in our account that are not in our possession. You can have a million dollars in the bank and starve to death. We have to make withdrawals on what he has put in our account. And learning how to make the withdrawals, learning how to recognize truth and act upon truth, grab hold of those things that God has made available for us, that's how this adventure becomes fruitful for his glory, for his name's sake. We're not, just, um, we're not just trying to be nice people uh, in an in a, you know, angry world. I mean, if that's all we were, congratulations, you're different. <laughs> you, you succeeded. But we are a nice people 
that carry the kingdom, which is leaven, that once it gets worked into the dough, it can never be removed. See, it can never be removed. Once the leaven is in the dough, you can't say, let's unleaven the bread. It's too late. It's already leavened. All it needs now is heat. And the heat of world circumstances always reveal whatever kind of leaven we put into the dough. Whether it's the leaven of the kingdom or it's the leaven of our own opinions and our own thinking. Many people have been willing to take a bullet, so to speak, for their own opinion and not for the mind of Christ. And so that's what we want to work on tonight. I want to talk to you about this, this issue of the mind of Christ because the Lord is, is wanting my thought life to reflect his thought life. I get there, but I rarely start there. It's confession time. I get there. Sometimes it's just a moment of repentance. Sometimes it's about an hour. But I get there. But I've decided it's the only reasonable place. See, he said, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation of every person in this room is equal to the transformation of your thought life. No more, no less. Transformed mind transforms a life. A transformed life transforms a city. We often try to use the principles of God to transform the workplace, transform our city, transform the politics, the education. It's all noble efforts. We have right goals. But if this isn't renewed, we lack the power, the authority to renew or to change that. It starts right here in our own personal life, our thought life, how we manage this area of our life. I had an interesting experience um, at the 1st of December last year. It's in the first week. I am... Um, I've had maybe four of these kinds of encounters or experiences somewhat similar to this. Four of them in 40 years. So I, I don't want you to have the picture that I have these angels that talk to me every night. <laughs> I wish that were true. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a rare thing, but when it happens, you, you certainly take notice. And this was one of those nights. I, it was a bit different the way it happened, but let me just cut to the chase. I was... I was uh, sleeping good. It was a Saturday night. I get up at 4 o'clock Sunday mornings. It's a very, very, very long day. And um, I was awakened with a thought. Now, I've had him awaken me with his voice, but this time it was with a thought. And this thought was, this is kind of a, a, a strange thing to be thinking. I woke up and I've got this thing racing through my mind. A walled city without gates is not entirely safe. A walled city without gates is not entirely safe. <clears throat> I quickly turned in my thinking to Old Testament cities. You know, the cities... Uh, would have these huge walls all around the city. And I remember I've studied at length uh, the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem after their captivity. And it's such a fun story. In fact, I just read it here just a couple weeks ago again. And I, I love the story so much, but it's, uh, the, the journey is rebuild the temple first in Ezra and then rebuild the walls around the city. The strength of a city is determined by the size the strength of the wall. You can imagine uh, a, a city with, with wood walls, uh, you know, uh, and then some great army comes. All they have to do is light it on fire, just pour oil on it, light the thing on fire. The obstacle, the thing that keeps them from victory is removed with just one simple match or a flint <laughs> or whatever. 
But these walls were massive, massive walls. Some of them were so large that they could have a chariot race on top of the wall. So they were that thick. There were actually, in some cases, there were homes, buildings actually built into the wall. So these are massive structures. And if you picture that kind of a city, as they're rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, there was a time where they got all the walls finished, but the gates weren't done. Well, if you're a thief, are you going to climb over the massive wall, or are you going to go through the hole that lacks a gate? Right? And that's the, the point, is there are, sometimes there's broken places in our life that actually give invitation for the enemy to come kill, steal, and destroy. And not following through, building up the strength, the graces that God has given us. In fact, it was such a critical thing in Nehemiah's day that he positioned, he did two different strategies. And one, one strategy, he took two people and one would use a trowel or, or whatever kind of tool they would have for rebuilding the wall. And the partner would stand to their side or to their back with weapons of war. And so wherever this guy went down the wall, the guy, you know, with, with the weapons of war would follow him because he was his protection. So it's a great picture that we keep each other covered. If you think about it, the way Uriah died, if you remember, Uriah was the husband, the original husband of Bathsheba. David committed adultery. He wanted him killed. What did they do? They put him on the front lines of battle. The entire army withdrew from him. So many believers crash and burn because everybody withdrew from them. They don't want to be associated with somebody with that kind of problem. And so they back away. So here we've got this rebuilding of the wall and the, 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 the gates and this, this phrase came to mind. So this is, my, this is the context I began to think through. He said a walled city without gates is not entirely safe. And that made sense to me because I've studied Nehemiah. And then my mind quickly turned uh, to Isaiah chapter 60 verse 19 where the Lord says this. He says, and your walls will be called salvation and your gates praise. Hmm. Walls, salvation, gates, praise. Salvation and praise. Salvation is what he does for you. Praise is what you do for him. So the completion of the wall, if you will, that realm of safety around our life is twofold. It's what he does, but it's our response. It's what we do. A walled city without gates is not entirely safe. And then I began to think about um, the book of Revelation. I've studied enough to, to, to recall this passage out of, I think it's Revelation 22. He says, he says um, and the, the gates to the city, the 12 gates to the city, each gate is made of a pearl. That's a weird gate. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's be honest. And God doesn't bother explaining himself. He said, it's a pearl. Okay. <laughs> and, then you, and then you realize that gates are formed out of irritation. So how's the gate of praise formed? It's not when you got the raise. It's what you did when you didn't get the raise. See, if God inhabits my praises, who inhabits my complaints? We actually give place to presence with everything we say and do. Who do we empower? So here's this picture then. We've got a walled city. Are you saved? Yes. The walls are built around my life. I am secure, but I have a role. Gates must be installed. And those gates are formed by my response to difficult situations. Can I praise him when things don't go well? Now, I, lo I love sports, and I love watching, you know, whoever wins the Super Bowl or the championship, NBA championship or World Series or whatever it might be. If you like soccer, I just can't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I know most of the world thinks I'm crazy, and I, I get it. I, it's all right. I, 
I am. I'm a little off. It's just hard to run that much and get one point. It just, let's be honest, it does not seem right. You know, if they gave the guy 10 points when he scored, I'm in. I'm in. I'm going, okay, all right, this makes sense. Yeah. And if he kicks it from that far away, he gets 20 points. You know? Anyway, all right. Pay no attention to me. I love watching the championships, and I love watching the reporters in the room of the winners. And there are so many believers in sports right now. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an unusual high percentage of believers that are in, in professional sports. It is a God thing. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my team was San Francisco Giants, and we knew of two believers on the entire team. One, one was a coach, one was a player. And that was it. And that was the rare thing. I mean, we knew of two Christians on a team and so thankful. And it was just, uh, it was so unusual. But today, my goodness, they're everywhere. And you, and you, hear, you hear the interviews after the victory, they faithfully give thanks to the Lord. Now, I never want to put that down. I'm, I'm thankful that they grab their moment and they say, you know what, I just give all glory to God. He's the one who gave me the, the ability, the grace, the talent, the opportunity, and I'm thankful. And I, I love those moments. But I'm looking forward to the day when they go to the loser's locker room and there's a believer in there that says, I'm just so thankful to have played the game. I feel so honored that God would give me a chance to be in this contest, to use my skills and my talents. Why? That's how gates are formed. That's how gates are formed. Gates, 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 places of, of access, gates, places of entrance. It's the, the concept of gates in Scripture. I, I'm, I'm going to get off track here a little bit, so I'll, I'll try to reel it back in in a moment here. But do you know that the house of God is called the gate of heaven? I'm not making this up. It's actually in the book. <laughs> Where Jacob puts his head on the rock and he goes to sleep and he sees angels ascending and descending. He makes this statement. He said, this is the house of God. He said, this is none other than the gate of heaven. What was happening there? Angels ascending and descending. It's interesting because John 1 does say that Jesus is the house of God, the tabernacle of God on earth. John 1 verse 14. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, there's angels ascending and descending upon Jesus, the prototype of the house of God on earth. And Nathaniel is stunned by this. And Jesus says, you'll see greater things than this. And then he calls you the house of God. What is a gate? A gate is a, is a place where you, you leave maybe your front yard to public property. It could be from your driveway to your backyard, a gate. Gate may be from the park downtown uh, through a gate onto a basketball court. The whole point is a gate is a passageway. You go from one reality to the next. And this house of God, this gate of heaven was parked on the edge of two worlds, heaven and earth, citizens of both realities, so that the reality of heaven can pass through the obedience, the radical lifestyle, the decree of this thing called the house of God and become manifest to the world around us. That's what happens every time you pray and someone is healed. Something came from this world, passed through the house, manifested in this one. What I want to have you look at with me tonight is in 1 Kings chapter 11.
forgive me, I'm going to read you a depressing part of Scripture. <laughs> Don't take it personal. It's just important that we read it. <clears throat> I want to use this story. It's, um, <clears throat> this is... Uh, part of Solomon's story. Solomon is, is one of my heroes of the Bible. I, I know things ended pretty bad, and the last part of his life was pretty raunchy. But um, I still want to learn from what he did right. I, I, wanted, I want to learn. <clears throat> and I want to learn from what he did wrong, too. <laughs> I don't want to do that one. <laughs> He had a gazillion wives. I'm, I'm not going to do that one. I can tell you. But look at this. Verse uh, 1 of 1 Kings 11. It says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, the women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, uh, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after the gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives. My goodness gracious. How is that even possible? I mean, let's be honest. How is that even possible? And 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For so it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. I, I don't have the time. We, none of us have the time for me to... to um, to talk about this impact of a father like David that becomes the standard by which every following king is measured. I've just spent recent weeks going through the kings again, Chronicles and Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and reading through these stories in Ezra and just seeing these, these, these guys who some of them did well but not completely well. Then it would say, and he did good in following the Lord as God, except he sacrificed on the high places. It's a frequent statement, except he made offerings on the high places. Sacrifices on the high places, they weren't offering offerings to false gods, so they could justify it because it was, it was their offerings to, to Jehovah God, their God. But the problem was, is God told them not to do it on the high places. So whenever you have self-will in worship, you no longer have worship. You have the exercise of self-will. That went over pretty good. <laughs> so these comments would be made over and over again. And so here it says of, of Solomon, his heart was not loyal like David. Look down at verse 9. It says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God to Israel. Look at, look at this phrase. Who had appeared to him twice. I have that circled. Who had appeared twice. See, everybody wants an encounter with God. But every encounter increases the responsibility. It's not a toy to play with being exposed to the heart of God, the voice of God, every single time it ups the responsibility. That's not, a, that's not a, to make people afraid of seeking the face of the Lord. It's to make people consistent in seeking the face of the Lord. In other words, once you've encountered God, don't stop because you've just become accountable for something that few people have ever experienced. And the Lord says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon who had appeared to him 
twice. It's interesting because when you look at this, this story early on, if you turn back in your Bibles to First uh, Kings, I'll just go to chapter 3, I think it is. You guys have your Bibles? Yeah. How many of you have your Bibles? Let me see them. Good. Say, I love my Bible. Oh, I really, really, really love my Bible. Oh, I do. All right. Chapter 3. It says, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Are you guys alive? Can, can, we, can we push into this a little bit more? Can you, can you follow me all right? All right. How are we doing for time? All right. We're doing all right. The king, verse 4, the king was at Gibeon. What is Gibeon? It's one of the high places. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. Now, isn't that like the mercy and the grace of God? Solomon, you're offering sacrifices on the high place, and I told you not to. Tell you what, I'll just show up. (laughs) The very next thing he does... Verse 15, Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark. He's sacrificing in a place. It's not immoral. It's not, you know, it's it's not demonic. It's just carnal. And God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you in your carnality. And Solomon wakes up, he realizes he just saw God and he's not satisfied to do any more sacrificing at Gibeon. He goes to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the presence is. I'm going to leave the symbolic and I'm going to go back to what I was called to in the first place. See, that process right there, somewhere in the journey, stopped. See, God is merciful to us. He, I, I, I love the fact that he welcomes us to come in and talk to him. If you're angry, he welcomes you. If you're bitter, come on in. <laughs> you're, you're caught up with yourself? No problem. We can deal with that. Come on. He welcomes us in whatever condition we're in, but we can't leave the way we came in. The whole point is, in this relational journey, there is a transformation. If I come into the presence of God and I leave the same way I came in, I wasn't praying, I was complaining. If I come into the presence of God, I heard somebody say recently, and I leave the same way I came in, I wasn't praying, I was complaining. There's, there's a difference See, Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me with your heavy stuff, I'll make an exchange. I'll give you the light stuff. Let's trade. So if the trade didn't happen, you didn't follow through with the transaction. You know, you didn't sign your name at the bottom of the check. You didn't do something. Because he invites us, come in, whatever shape you're in, just come. But let's go face to face. Let's go heart to heart. Let's make the exchange. So Solomon did what? He married all these wives. And these women were the daughters, many of them were daughters of the kings of the surrounding nations. It was thought in that day that if a king married the daughter of uh, another king, then they would never go to war. So it was actually part of kingly strategy to marry with these other kings because if they were in covenant together in marriage, then they would never have to go to war. I want to use this concept of marriage 
symbolically, if I can, with you tonight to to, to try to paint a picture. Solomon already had more favor than any person to ever live. And he's trying to obtain favor by intermarrying. All the kings of the earth sat at his feet to hear his wisdom. Let's say that might be favor. They came from the known world. All of them came to sit at his feet. What does it take for a king who sits on his throne, who is the focus of attention, all the wealth, the blessings, the entertainment, the food, all the stuff, the protection, it's all about him and his family line. What does it take for a guy in that position to leave it, travel some distance like the queen of Sheba did, and sit at the feet of another king to learn? Something was so compelling about what Solomon carried that men from all over the known world would come and sit at his feet. Extreme favor. Extreme favor. I'd like to suggest to you that there are times where God gives us favor because of the mind of Christ. He gives us favor because we've been faithful to the Lord, not because we fought for popularity, not because we've contended to be recognized, but simply because we truly have followed the Lord. And the scripture says when we have found favor with him, he makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. So here's this moment where Solomon has got this favor all over the place. Two different people prophesied to Solomon. Neither of them would be what we would call believers. One was the queen of Sheba and the other was Hiram, a friend, uh, another king that was a good friend of King David. Both of them prophesied over Solomon and said the exact same thing. These words, Solomon you are highly favored of the Lord because of his love for Israel. If you miss that, you'll miss the entire purpose for the blessing of God on our lives. God longs to bless you and me more than we have the intelligence to ask for. He has plans for blessing, for increase, for favor, for all the things that we would dream of. They're already written in his plan. But what he said to Solomon is key. He said, through these two other royal families, God has highly favored you because of his love for Israel. So what's the implication? Favor on my life has to bless the people around me or it's misused favor. The favor on Solomon was for the benefit of Israel. If he used the favor for himself then Israel didn't participate. They didn't partake of of the divine favor. Which means what? It was misused. It was misdirected. It's not that God doesn't love you and favor you for who you are. He does. But you and I are never more fully engaged to our design than when we use the favor of God for the sake of people around us. That's how we're designed. To miss that is to choose, this is where I'm going to level off in my personal development because you can't trust me with more. It may be insight. It may be friendships. It may be an unusual place of favor at work. It could be any number of things. But the point is, from God's perspective, it's all wealth. And it has been given to us to benefit people around us. And at some point, Solomon compromised how many of you know horrible sins like like marrying 700 women and falling for other gods and all the crazy stuff. That didn't happen overnight. He didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to marry 700 women worship false gods. It doesn't happen that way. It's just, it's that slow turning of the heart. It's that, it's that undealt with sacrifice at Gibeon. Self-will, the fly in the ointment was never ever dealt with. And because of that, it was just, it became, it became the, 
the, the weakness in the foundation. It became the weakness that became so incredibly exposed when the weightiness of favor is added to his life. And the crazy thing is, he began to fight for what he already had. He began to fight. He began to fight. He began to marry, you know, the daughters of the kings around him. He began to fight for this favor thing. It's, 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 it happens to many Christians who taste a favor and make compromise for popularity. Marry the foreign women of a wrong ideology. I'll embrace this thought so I can have favor with this group. And I'll believe just a part of this lie so that I have favor with this group. And the church all over the world is embracing false ideologies in order to have favor. It's marrying foreign women. If you have more input from mainstream media than you do the Word of God, your discouragement is self-inflicted. Your confusion is your own doing. I'm so confused. Yeah. You should be. Look at what you listen to. How do you think you could put your hand in a toilet and bring it out clean? It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Let's drink to that. Can we? <laughs> Voices are being amplified that a year or two years ago had zero amplification. If you can imagine a, sp a speaker says me, loud broadcast over the nations, and a year or two years ago, they were unknown. What happened? There's a demonic force behind what they're saying, trying not to get us to follow the enemy, just try to get us to be weakened in our following of the Lord. If he can add the flight of the ointment, so to speak, he can take a king like Solomon who is so blessed of the Lord that they actually piled up silver in the streets and didn't bother to count it. Which tells me there was nobody poor. Because the poor certainly would have grabbed the silver. The point I'm trying to make is this favor of God on this man that he tried to expand through self-promotion cost him a glorious ending to his life. Cost him. It reminds me a lot of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> the enemy came to them in the garden <clears throat> and said, if you partake of this fruit, you'll be like God. They already were. They tried to obtain through their effort what they already had by grace. They tried to apprehend through self-will what they already had as a gift. Same exact thing with Solomon. Exact. What's the point? <clears throat> God has given us his mind. This is Jesus in print. Don't tell me you love Jesus and you don't love his word. Slap yourself. Slap yourself till you're thinking straight. And if you don't have the courage to do it, your neighbor will be happy to help you. 
Well, I don't remember what I read. So? I don't remember what I had for breakfast last Friday, but it's still nearest me. Oh, I fall asleep when I pray. I never got mad at my kids when they fell asleep in my arms. Some of these things we just we see from the victim's mentality or the person who's trying to work their way into grace instead of from the son who realizes highly favored, the daughter who realizes highly favored. Highly favored, yes, I fell asleep in the presence of the almighty God. I intentionally fall asleep night after night in the presence of God. for people and I gotta gotta make time for this. So let me be fast here. I'm gonna crash land this plane. <laughs> it's probably not a funny joke, is it? I just got off a plane. I'm glad it landed. <laughs> you know, 1 Corinthians 2 has some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. <clears throat> oh goodness. In verse 1, he says, I came, uh, I didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring the testimony of God. <clears throat> I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, this is, this is in your face. I'm all in following Jesus. Yeah. Boom. And he just, he just draws a line. And then he says, I didn't come to you with persuasive words in verse 4, but in demonstration of spirit and power. Paul said, that's how I came to you. I didn't come to you with philosophy to tickle your ears. I came and demonstrated the power of God. <clears throat> and he takes them through this whole thing, talks about who they are, what they're responsible for, and in verse th chapter 3 says this. I want to end with this. Actually, it makes a poor ending, so I'll probably add part B. <laughs> he said... Where there's envy, verse 3 of chapter 3, where there's envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Are you not carnal, acting human? Well, we're only human. No. No, you were. You were. You were only human. But now the spirit of the resurrected Christ dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. The mind of Christ is in your account. And you're behaving like mere men. Once the spirit of God has taken up residence in us, we have lost the right to live as a normal human being. We've got to expect more. Not because of our significance, not because of our talent or skill or whatever, just because of his grace. I believe that the Lord is going to do something in this church, but also the church of Austin, because I know we have people here from, from uh, many churches. Some of you I, I'm just thrilled to see, because <clears throat> I know you. But I, I believe what the Lord's doing in this hour is he's, we are being so exposed to thoughts and ideals and insanity and craziness and swirly this and swirly that and accusations and shame and guilt. All this crud's going on all around us so that we have a contrast to settle into the mind of Christ and find our place of rest with what he thinks, with what he says, with what he has promised. 
And I believe he's going to use this time for the advancement of everybody in the room who says yes to this. I determine to walk. By the grace of God, I will walk in the mind of Christ. Because I want to prove the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Say this with me. I want to prove the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. I want to prove the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's the mandate that we've been given. But it's never been about the miracles. It's always been about the relationship. You know, we have seasons in our life, seasons where things become so clear and seasons where they're foggy and I don't know, I think it's just cycles of life. <clears throat> but I, I've recognized seasons where I, I just didn't know what I was doing. That's usually all the time, but sometimes are worse than others. I just didn't know what I was doing, but I did determine to follow the cloud, so to speak, if you understand that metaphor, to follow the presence of the Lord. I didn't know what I was doing. But when you do that, you end up with more miracles by accident than you ever got when you tried to get them on purpose. They are the byproduct of a relational journey. Here's the way we are. We like the outcome of things. Save the money, finally buy the car. Finally uh, have that accomplishment. Prayed and prayed and finally that person is healed. We like the outcome. He likes the journey. He likes the journey. He likes, he likes it when I couldn't sleep at night. <clears throat> and instead of laying in bed filled with anxiety, I got up to pray. That's, that's one of the things he writes down. He says, I, I like, Bill, I like when you did that. Oh, but God, I was so anxious. Yeah, I know, but you came to the right place. You, you came before my face. So I want you to stand. <clears throat> We're going to pray for some folks here, and I, I know kids are coming in, and more kids are going to come in in a little bit, but, but I don't know how long I talked. I probably talked a long time, didn't I? It's, it's like, I haven't been here in three years. You're getting three years worth. Just, just, that's, that's the way it works. That's right. I mean, I shouldn't punish you, but, you know, I am. I, uh, let's pray this. This together. I feel like some of you have been very, very tormented in your mind. And, and I don't say that in a way to, to shame anybody, to uh, criticize or ridicule. We just live at a very tumultuous time. I mean, it, you know, let's be honest. <laughs> I saw a great meme the other day that said, let's be honest. In 2015, none of us said, this is where we thought we'd be in five years. <laughs> none of us got it right. So. All you prophetic people, none of you got it right. All right. <laughs> but there's, uh, there's torment. Some, I, th I think there's at least one, if not two people in the room, you've actually contemplated taking your own life. <clears throat> and again, not to shame anyone, just to say, you know what, today's a great day to be free of that. <clears throat> There's a lot of torment on the mind of confusion. You've actually, some of you have started to embrace things that a year ago you would have said that's absolutely not true, but today you've weakened to it. And it's, it's this marrying foreign women because you want to increase favor. And the Lord, I believe, highlighted this verse tonight for you. Because I believe that the Lord is going to strengthen 
I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but the exhibition of the mind of Christ in Austin. The exhibition, the display, the full-on display of the mind of Christ. So put your hands in front of you. Let's pray. We receive the mind of Christ. We receive the grace of God. To see the way you see. To think the way you think. And to represent you well. We embrace it as a gift of grace. I want you just to pull your hands towards your heart right now. Just as a prophetic act saying, I receive this as a gift of grace. Now, Father, I'm asking for the power of the Spirit of God to rest now upon this assembly of believers. And that suicidal spirit, that tormenting spirit that has... uh, has uh, tried to work in uh, false doctrine, uh, lies, those kinds of things, that there would be a true deliverance and driving of those powers out of people's lives now in the name of the Lord Jesus. The mind of Christ is our portion. We just declare, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Say this with me. God has not given me a spirit of fear. He's given me a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. God has not given me a spirit of fear. He has given me a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. This is my inheritance. Father, I'm asking that there would be so much hope in the hearts of the believers in this room, those who are watching online, so much hope that hope would become contagious, that, that cities that have become overwhelmed with fear would now become overwhelmed with hope. Overwhelmed with fear would become overwhelmed with promise, that you would pull us through promise out of the hole that we found ourselves in into the place of exhibiting, demonstrating, proving the mind of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.